Welcome to the Revenue Architect Podcast. My guest this week is Justin Schweisberger, Chief Revenue Officer of Promata. Welcome, Justin. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Justin, many of our readers are salespeople and very familiar with their contract getting stuck in legal. Uh, but very few of them really know about contract lifecycle management. You've been in that space for a long time. Could you maybe just give us a quick primer on the problems that, that exist and the problems that Promata is solving? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's been pretty exciting to see as a space the uptick over the last couple of years. You know, there's a couple of big challenges in the space. You know, a lot of not, a lot of times, like you said, salespeople are used to contracts getting stuck in legal. Um, one of the big challenges that we solve is, you know, a lot of times they're looking for the old contracts that you did with the customer. So, what have you already signed? You know, you think you're a sales rep. Um, a customer calls in with a question, and you have to go call up legal, and they track down, you know, five different systems finding it. So, you know, that's really for us um, what we've seen is there's a lot of power for the revenue teams by solving how you manage your contracts um, from the request all the way through the renewal. Got it. Yeah, it's it's really interesting how the space has uh, evolved. Uh, you know, you've been in it for 13 years, and I noticed in becoming a CRO, you took kind of a non-traditional path coming up through consulting and then operations and product. Can you maybe tell us about that journey? Yeah, it's a it's a very very non-traditional route. And actually, I'll go back to when I joined the company. Um, so I actually was on the path to go to law school, um, working at a law firm uh, here in Kansas City. And I was tasked with solving for one of our larger clients, a contract management problem. And so they said, look at the systems on the market, figure out what's out there. I was doing my research, you know, know, like you do, you pick up the phone and call people, get demos. And everybody was kind of saying, the way you know what's in your contracts is if you just standardize everything and you want to run it through our system. And that was kind of one approach. And the other approach I called a couple of fields in a system and a pat on the back. And so Pramata came along and I'd felt the pain. So I'd had to look at contracts. And so I ended up reaching out immediately and saying, hey, this is really unique in the market. Can I join the company? I ended up joining the company in an operational role. And that experience actually, you know, in the early days of a startup, you raise your hand for everything. So I raised my hand to help with marketing. And then I raised my hand to, uh, to help with sales calls. And that kind of led to me, um, I ended up reporting to the EVP of sales and marketing at the time, building out the solution consulting function in the company. Um, so really leveraging that expertise in the contract management space to help our customers and prospects. And so, again, that kind of role evolved into much more of a chief product officer, um, product-oriented role. How do we take those learnings from sales and embed them into the product? You know, I kind of Work through the different roles. I mean, I, I think everything but the the finance uh, team in the company I ended up working for at one point. Um, and when our CRO at the time moved on, it was kind of a natural fit for me. I'd always been a uh, go-to-market focused chief product officer um, to move into the CRO role. That's really fascinating. The way that you you felt the problem and you got into it more from like a product standpoint. How do I solve the problem? And then how do I sell people on the solution? And um, you know, how do you think that shaped how you approach being a CRO? You know, like many CROs come up through sales, they think about deal, 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 close a deal yeah. process. Um, I came up through product as well. So I, yeah. I approach it from more like an analytics data standpoint. I'm curious for you with your background, especially coming from law into kind of into product and now into sales, how do you break down problems that you face as a CRO? Yeah. So there's a couple points. I'd say the the first is more the operational role, um, which I, I definitely, you know, my experience running projects and then running the product, product team, you start to break down an overall system you can't you know you can't just look at one part you kind of have to look at how the pieces fit together from an overall engine 
Um, and, and you could actually see that from a go-to-market perspective. So when I look from a CRO, what I really want to understand is, you know, the different steps in the process. And the reason that's important is that collects data at each of those individual steps, right? And you can really zero in on the bottlenecks um, and you can see what's moving through the process and what's not. And you can say, well, was this even a winnable deal? Let's go back and see what types of leads are we generating? Are they the right types of things that will move through the process? Um, so that's kind of the overall structural piece from a CRO. And I'd say that actual subject matter expertise, you know, having sat through demos to be sold on solving this problem was a very, very good experience and very informative because I heard people dramatically oversell their capabilities in such an obvious way. And they would just sell. They wouldn't ask me, okay, but how do you do this part of your process? How do you work contracts to the system? How do you structure deals? And I think cutting through the nonsense and getting really specific and, you know, discovery, or we use a phrase, and I, don't, I think you use it too, like diagnosis versus discovery. Like, how do you get to the root of the problem? Ask good questions, create that empathy, and, you know, not dramatically oversell things because lawyers, I will say this, are amazing BS detectors, and they will see that see through that immediately. It's so true. You know, in my current role, Athena, we sell to lawyers, and yeah, lawyers are very <laughs> straight to yeah. the point, very direct. Uh, we our own general counsel is is like that too. I've never met a lawyer who wasn't. So I can see how you bring a lot of credibility in the fact that you had that background. And and yeah, diagnosis versus discovery. Like I always feel like diagnosis is more collaborative. Discovery is a little yeah. bit like we're having a discovery call. You well, know? exactly. And, and it's like you have your checklist of questions. Let me make sure make sure I ask every yeah. discover like rather than diagnosing and like it's a much more active role. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then just going into your operational, um, the way you you approach the operational role, I really like how you said you figure out the different steps in the process and figure out where the bottlenecks are. And so curious there, like, how are you able to use that approach to figure out who your ideal customer profile was? Because I've talked to other people in in this space and like, they've got very strong opinions like, oh, if they don't have Salesforce and CPQ, like, or they got to be B2B and they've got to have a highly negotiated contract. There's so many different things there that are, you know, hard to tease out without really good data collection. So yeah, just curious from your standpoint, like, how did you use your process to, to figure out your ICP? Yeah, this is a big focus of mine. Like I collect stage data, like who do we meet with? What were the characteristics? Make sure that that's maintained. And what you can actually get to is people have their theories on what works, right? And they're like, oh, I think, you know, if we do this, it's going to work. Well, when you start to aggregate the data, what you can see is, hey, meetings that came in through this marketing channel have a a meeting to qualified conversion rate of only 40%. So is that really a performing channel because they immediately fall off after that? Oh, this channel, uh, you know, I, I go back to the source, right? This channel is producing at something that's converting at 80%. Let's look at that and understand why. And when you dig in, you can actually get to, you know, who are you meeting with? What's the level? What are the characteristics of the person that you're meeting with? And that's kind of the data-driven piece is you actually can start to break down at a persona level. Um, we go so specific as to the the level of the person. So, you know, the the functional area and the level of the person in the company. Um, and the scale of company, right? And there's many ways you can kind of start to break down and get to your ICP um, and the buyer personas. 
And in our space, right, it's actually super important because in our early days, one of the big challenges for us is the ownership of contracts was actually spread like peanut butter. So CRO owns the sales contracts, head of procurement owns the procurement contracts, legal owns the NDAs, right? And it's spread across the business. And I think it was very tough to find an individual consolidated buyer in the early days. Um, in the last couple of years, that's moved over to the legal team. But again, that one of the things that helped us uncover that trend, I'd say earlier um, than a lot of people, is the fact that we're we're collecting what's converting, what's not converting. That's really interesting because I, I imagine your sale is a multi-persona sale that's also multifunctional. Like you mentioned sales, legal procurement, and then you've got like the VP or whatever, and then the ops person that really understands. So you could have like five or six people involved here. And and you, you've mentioned it was sounded like it was more like that in the old days. And, and then it's consolidated more. You know, are you seeing like, uh, first of all, is that true? And then secondly, are you seeing like, you know, legal as a function developing more purchasing authority? Because it seems like it's the last function in the org to like finally buy SaaS, you know? Uh, that's actually very, very accurate. And in the very early days, I mean, I've been with the company over 10 years. So in the very early days, right, we actually, in my experience, we had lawyers that you know, coming into the company with as a subject matter expert working with us to help our customers. Legal was the target. Um, and if you rewind 10 years ago, you know, there were a couple of things. Number one, they 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 didn't weren't empowered to buy stuff, just generally. They were viewed as a cost center. Um, mm-hmm. and number two, even if they were empowered to buy stuff, just like frankly, they didn't know how to buy. So they were always getting, you know, caught off guard with, oh, there's a you think of kind of like a security review I have to do. I have to, oh, wait, I need budget approval for this, like the very basics. And so in the early days, it was very much like that. Um, and then, you know, we had a pretty significant evolution in our go-to-market, a, a couple of different shifts, and I'll, and I'll tie back to the, the question, right, which is what we realized is that the different functional areas were driving it. And so we were very much an enterprise sales-focused company. Like, I mean, big ticket, you think large deal sizes, very lumpy, multiple buying personas in the process. And we had that traditional enterprise motion. So going around, you know, consolidating the different buying groups, rolling up the requirements, all of that sort of stuff. And it actually ended up leading to, from a product perspective, the chief product officer, right? It it led to actually a pretty complicated product. And it actually got, I would say, very expensive to solve these more um, enterprise level problems. And it wasn't a traditional SaaS motion. And so one of the things that we did, we kind of took a step back and we said, hey, is there a way to simplify the product? simplify the value proposition and take this actually further down market at a much lower ACV and really focus on that legal persona and not just solving their efficiency problems, but let's leverage that experience that we gain working with procurement and sales to empower them to empower the broader business and actually help them get better at buying stuff and help them get better at removing the cost center piece. Yeah. You know, there's a, other companies have sort of taken a similar approach, like DocuSign's one that comes to mind, where you might sell to HR to do uh, offer letters, and then you might sell mm-hmm. to sales to do contracts, and then you'd come in and do an enterprise deal. So, um, I think that's a path that's you know well trodden and, and proven to work, and it makes a lot of sense that you kind of simplified your GTM and, and yeah. focused on that that legal persona and that legal ops persona. Do you find that they are they actually know how to buy stuff now, or is it still are you still educating them? That I, I will say it's still very important to understand where buyers in the space are in their buyer's journey. They're they're much more sophisticated, but relative to a sales ops who's used to buying 
a whole stack, right? They're, they're not at that level. And so from a selling perspective, it becomes really important to just figure out where they are so that you don't and help them along their journey. If they're earlier, if they're later, you know, you don't go for the close when they're, you know, really just getting to solution requirements. It sounded like you talked about diagnosis before, and I can imagine part of that is qualifying where they are in that journey, but can maybe break down that process for, for us. What really what we're looking at first and foremost is qualifying where they are in the journey. So are they getting, are they even figuring out what they should do from a, um, a buyer's perspective? And actually we just did a big um, process redesign using a lot of your stuff, actually. Are you, are you mostly outbound at this point? We have shifted from an outbound to more of an inbound motion, which is a big shift for us. When you go from enterprise to more of a mid-market or commercial segment, you really have to, it's not just a scale down. And so we've actually... Um, uh, adjusted everything to move to probably 75% inbound, 25% outbound. Um, we've really looked at different marketing channels. So pay-per-click has actually been at this, at this place, very effective for us. Um, and, and that, but that does force the, you know, figuring out where they're at. Cause sometimes in inbound, right? You, you're looking at when you had a traditional outbound model, you're, you want to draw their attention to the whole universe, right? And you're like, okay, let me create an initiative in this company. And it was a big change for our sales team to get used to figuring out, wait, they've already created an initiative. They've got budget behind this, right? They're trying to do it in the next you know, 90 days, right? Next quarter, get something started. And to start asking those questions, it's just a very different selling motion. And it, it was some, you know, I would call it some growing pains along the way getting there. Yeah, the I like the spiced framework. I've written about a little bit on the blog mm-hmm. and the critical event piece, like that's really what yes. I think differentiates outbound and inbound. When it come when outbound they don't have a critical event. Um yeah. when they're inbound, they almost always do. And so building your kind of diagnosis questions to to ask like Yeah, space to, to space. About. I think that's an excellent one. I mean, we we've kind of sprinkled in that's like we kind of created our own little framework using using that um and really zeroing in on the the right challenges. But I think the critical event is it's so easy to zoom past and and not ask that one next question mm-hmm. of okay, so so you want this, what happens if you don't, or what's driving that right now? And it's very easy. That's why the diagnose for discovery for me is so important. It's like a much more active getting to a right thing because the next stage is prescribe. How do I prescribe a sequence of events for them Exactly. Um, based on the diagnosis? So true. And you mentioned that it's really interesting how you've shifted from outbound to like 75% inbound and using different marketing channels and paid search being yeah. very effective. Um, what else is working for you right now for generating leads? Yeah. So the one good thing about targeting legal and really zeroing in that buyer persona is that they're a pretty tight-knit group. If you think about it, there's lots of legal associations that people are members of, they talk, you know, people in the legal the community are very proud of being lawyers, rightfully so. And so what we found is there's a couple of key channels from an event and just overall association perspective. So that's been one really effective thing is just becoming active participants in that. And one of the things we did recently was actually bring in a new um, general counsel and chief evangelist who was a former user at one of our customers who loves Pramata, um, like literally the world's best user very outgoing and bringing him on board, I will say it's totally changed the game from the the dynamics of conversations in terms of the credibility that you bring. 
right? And you get access to that very tight knit community. So um, it was definitely, you know, it's not necessarily a traditional, you know, marketing tactic, go out there, do you do events or, but really when you have that tight knit community, finding someone with high credibility in that community and having them just participate, educate, you know, one of our best performing webinars we did, I mean, it was literally three or four X, whatever we've done in the past. And it was actually a webinar with our SME, so the general counsel, teaching people best practices in negotiating indemnification and limitation of liability clauses. People loved it. So many people signed up. They actually broke the Zoom for the host that was hosting it. So we're doing it through a channel. And that actually started really generating buzz and the inbound meetings from those sorts of things, right? You're raising awareness. Um, You have a person that's highly credible. You have a person with a very compelling personal story. Um, That was pretty exciting for for us. That's so smart because every contract (laughs) gets redlined around that. I know. It's the hot button. And it's really like, it's beautiful because it's related to your product and it's related to the problem of the contract being stuck in legal. It's because, yeah. oh, they want 5X. We give them 2X. Or someone wants 50X. They're, they're nuts. Like, okay, let's create like a super cap. And that's, not, you know, yeah. And, and, and very- all these techniques, like, yeah, these, I imagine in these associations, they sort of talk about it, but like, it's only once you actually go through a bunch of deals and you'd be like, oh, this is how everybody, everybody's got this problem. So this is the latest technique. And yeah, it's so relevant ultimately yeah. to the problem you're solving. So I think a lot of companies, they go wrong here when they go top of funnel. They just talk about some very generic thing, but it's very actionable and like, oh, I should talk to Pramata and like figure out what they sell. One of the most important things for us is what I call value add follow-up. And it's not anything revolutionary, but it's when you've met with a prospect and they're much earlier in their buyer's journey, right? And you know, they're just kind of scanning the market, figuring out what they should prioritize. That's great. Don't just write them off. Take really good notes in the meeting, really good notes. And what that means is based on your conversation, you t- they took 30 minutes out of their day, an hour out of their day, They you learn stuff. Based on that, what events do we have? You know, what sort of like these webinars? Hey, I think based on our conversation, you asked about indemnification. We have an indemnification webinar. It'd be great. Those sorts of things we actually, that's a big emphasis of us is creating the credibility because um, in our particular space, right? One of the things that's that's going on is there is a lot of, I call it, you know, bombastic claims. There's a lot of VC money flowing into the space right now. That means there's a lot of pressure on a lot of CROs to get very transactional um, in how they approach things. And I think you can differentiate by really leaning into the expertise, leaning into the fact that you know what you're talking about. You, you nailed it there. Like the the investor pressure to like produce a perfect spreadsheet. <laughs> when you're doing what customers want, the spreadsheet looks great. But there's a lot, I think there's too much focus on like make the spreadsheet look really good. And so it's like DQ, 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 transact, yeah. transact, transact. And it it doesn't actually work like that in, in real life. <laughs> well, and this is where I will say the dual like marketing and sales role. I always joke that like, depending on the meeting, I'm arguing with myself in my head. It's like, oh, you know, those meetings were horrible. Well, but are, were they really horrible? You know, and you get that like, let's yeah. DQ it because it'll make the numbers look bad. I'd rather say it was not qualified. And really they were qualified. They just weren't ready to buy right now. So how do you bring them along, you know, from where they're at? Mm-hmm. You know, it sounds like a lot of your buyers that like they're coming in different stages of the, the journey, maybe not so well educated. Um, probably some fear involved of like spending a couple hundred grand, I would imagine, on on something like this. 
what kind of objections do you run into and, and, and how do you overcome them? Yeah. So there's a couple of objections, you know, some of them are very basic. You think about an attorney, right? One of their big questions is security. How can I trust? Can I share my information with you? Their contracts, they don't want to share those. So that's actually a pretty big objection. Um, but I will say, you know, because we've been around for a while, we have some very large, you know, Fortune 10 customers that we work with. And we can say, hey, we've been working with, you know, McKesson for, for 10 years now, right? They trust mm-hmm. us. Very large companies. I think that really helps that particular piece. The other people are very concerned. They're concerned about an unsuccessful project. A lot of the people we're meeting with, they're researching different vendors and they want to understand, like, they want to be successful. They want to have a high likelihood of success. So that's one particular thing. And so the way you convince them, we're not saying there's a magic AI, but, you know, I think a lot of people are technology first and we are too, right? But they're like, there's this magic button that you push. And it just works. And the one of the unique things for us, and it helps take this off the table, is we couple that with an expert team to actually set it up. In some cases, you actually have to review, organize the contracts for the customer. So you minimize the number of dependencies on them, which increases the likelihood of success. Um, and the last objection is it's not so much an, an objection as it is a thing that will derail things, is they're in legal. And, and you know, they often, I think the DNA is often, hey, I, I want to get this through. Let's focus on, on my needs, right? Let's make our team more efficient. But one of the things that you can, again, adding value to them is educate that, look at the ROI of that, like really look at it and see what is that ROI look like? And by the time you get to the CFO, is that going to move the needle? Um, and encouraging them and giving them the confidence to engage the business, right? And look at things slightly differently, which is how do I, from legal, empower the rest of the business? And by the way, one of the things that's great for us is we have those case studies lining up from large companies where we've done those sorts of things. And so I think those are you know, three of the big objections um, is, you know, number one, can I share this? Are you secure? Um, number two, how do I make sure this is successful? Like this is my one project. Like I don't have 10 projects. This is my one thing. Um, and then, you know, number three, getting over the the fear of engaging and empowering the business and and really turning it from a, a fear based thing to a place of abundance. Yeah, you meant because I think you mentioned earlier that legal historically has been a cost center, mm-hmm. uh, and so they always felt that way. Like biggest expense in legal is outside counsel, which always was. I was like, why do we have wow. lawyers if we spend on outside counsel? But mm-hmm. then someone explained it to yeah. me. But they they've always had a you know big um, always under cost pressure. So there's always that fear of saying, oh, I don't want to ask for too much money. And then if I ask for money, I'm going to get knocked back mm-hmm. and all those kinds of things. But I think the the high like wanting to have a high likelihood of success is almost a universal thing in any anytime you're changing mm-hmm. vendor or changing yeah. process, because it's not just you. It's like it's your it's, it's your colleagues, it's your boss. It's like, I don't want to get fired for doing this. And I think that emphasizing the, that you're going to be a partner. And yeah. through that process, it's just you mentioned having an expert team to set it up and and not overselling your technology and mm-hmm. going like, look, we're not just going to analyze your contracts and become mag- better lawyers than you. You know, yeah. we're going to do the grunt it. work, and you can do. You know, the you can you can kind of check it. I think um, it gives people a lot of confidence. I've found that in in my business that mm-hmm. uh, customers will choose us because we're there through the implementation um, and and ongoing kind of relationship. I had a couple more questions for you before we ran out of time. 
how has your team grown over the years? I mean, you know, 13 years, like what does yeah. it, it look like now? What does it look like? I don't know, five years ago, you know, how, how's yeah, it Yeah. So the, it's funny. The, the composition is, is different and it reflects the go-to-market model. So I'd say, you know, very early on, it was basically me and the sales guy. So me as the SC slash SME, really, I was more of the SME doing the demo and a sales guy going out there and really trying to find really, I'd say very specific use case oriented deals, right? And once we started getting, you know, that we really scaled up but for much more of a traditional outbound. So we built out the SDR team, BDR team, enterprise sales, you know, heavy solution consulting and partner energy and that sort of stuff. And it kind of scaled in that direction for a long time. When, when I took over as CRO, one of the things that we actually did was how do we um, look at simplifying the go-to-market motion to correspond with the simplified product offering and the simplified um, uh, the simplified sales motions, the simplified buying experience, right? And so um, one of the things we did is we actually kind of reorged the team, created a dedicated commercial sales team. Um, and then that only had one person at the time um, because one of the big things you know, that I learned along the way was a lot of times people hire early on, you hire feet on the street and you think that's going to solve your top of funnel problem. And so we actually spent about six months, um, I would call with a very agile, so product-based go-to-market motion where we, I was in cycles, we were collecting data, adjusting to what, like really trying to nail that new story. So we had a you know head of content and creative that scaled that piece up. And then we brought on a head of demand gen after that, and then started scaling out the rest of the commercial sales team at, to line up with the, the, the top of funnel. So I'd say we, the, the team actually transitioned from a traditional enterprise sales team to actually a much more traditional SaaS motion these days, which is, and we really focused on the product market fit in an agile way, the story, like how do we really nail that before going, you know, we, before going and plowing a ton of money into the demand gen program. And then we Moved down the kind of down the funnel to the demand gen um, team, scaled that piece up, and then scaled the sales team um, from there. And then you still have the enterprise team. We do, yeah. yeah. We still have that enterprise motion. We didn't we didn't abandon it. We're very successful in it. Yeah. But um, one of the funny things that I found is that if you really focus on that that more scalable traditional SaaS motion, right, in the commercial model. And you nail the ICP, you nail the story for that. A funny thing happened, which is we actually got more enterprise cycles too, inbound, because we were nailing the story in a much, much simpler way. Um, so it's kind of funny how that actually led to, by focusing um, and trying to simplify it, it actually led to even more enterprise cycles as well. That is really interesting. It's almost like, just listen to customers and and how do they describe the impact that they get from us? And then we're like, let's put that on our website because <laughs> it's like, it, rather than us trying to make it up. I tell you what, this the product simple, you cannot overstate the importance. I know people say it all the time, but like really listening to the customer. And I will say one of the dangers, and we've, we've fallen into this trap is listening for what you want to hear and not what they're really saying. And that was at the center of the overall simplification, which is like, hey, you guys are doing some really amazing things with data from contracts. You're building revenue forecasts and finding revenue leakage and all this really very valuable stuff. But the most important thing is you just got everything in one place and you organized it for me. So I could look up anything in a second and, you know, really listen. And we're like, yeah, but what about this really cool report that we do? Yeah. And isn't it? And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. That's great. But 
also just, I can now find my contract. That's pretty amazing. You made my life easier. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. We, we find that we sell compliance training and we're like, it's really cool. And the admin features, and they're like, you know, the best thing about it is it's all automatic and I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> so yeah. it's, uh, I've, and I imagine there's aspects of that in here too. Like mm-hmm. the, that's the purpose of SaaS is to take away the boring stuff so you can yeah. focus on the fun stuff. Justin, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, best of luck continuing to build from Arthur. Yeah, thanks a lot, Marty. I really appreciate it.